This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, we have a smorgasbord of local arts happenings. A sneak peek at the four finalists who'll be vying for the role of conductor for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. A new portraiture show of local faces. The return of a musical comedy to a Columbia stage. And a pop-up art show that if you blink, you'll miss it. But you'll have to wait until the last act of tonight's tour to find out when not to blink. As always, it's a jam-packed show, so let's start in the world of orchestral music. Last summer, maestro Kirk Trevor stepped down from his role as conductor and music director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra and the Missouri Symphony Conservatory after a tenure of over 20 years. And that opened up the door for someone new to come and take over the podium. But who... Well, rather than making a decision away from the court of public opinion, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra instead decided that they would turn over their annual Hot Summer Nights program to the four finalists for the position and invite them each to program and conduct two concerts in what they are billing as Hot Summer Nights Summer of Conductors. And this past weekend, they announced who those final four contenders would be. And I am delighted to welcome back to the show, the orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash. Hello, Trent. Hello. Thank you so much for making time this week. Not only are you in the midst of launching the orchestra's summer season, but you also have a lead role in a major musical at Talking Horse Productions, Fun Home, which just opened last weekend and runs for two more weeks. How are you, A, staying sane and B, remembering your lines? I know it's very difficult, but I am making it. And, and on top of that, you know, we moved into a new office. So there has been quite a lot of activity in the month of April. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You must be really good at learning lines and remembering them. Yeah. <laughs> So the symphony is now on the cusp of its first hot summer night season without Kirk at the helm, although he will be making a conductor emeritus appearance for the first concert of the season. But talk to me about what kind of person the symphony set out to search for to take over the role of conductor. Yeah, great question. You know, I think that one of our big focuses and part of our new strategic plan, which we're in year one of, was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, I think that was on the forefront of the search committee's mind is we need to find someone that that looks like a part of a community that maybe we want to feel belongs or has a seat at the orchestra. So I do think that we really um, were looking at a diverse pool of applicants and, and how that would enhance the cultural scene here in Columbia. Conducting the symphony is only one of the hats that the conductor wears. What else falls under their purview? Right. So they are, first and foremost, the music director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, which, of course, does the Summer Music Festival, the Young Persons Concert in November, and the Symphony of Toys Concert. But they also oversee the Missouri Symphony Conservatory. So they will be the director of the top ensemble, the Missouri Youth Symphony of that organization. So that keeps them pretty busy during the year. And beyond that, we hope that we also will cultivate a relationship with our new music director that allows them to do more outreach. So maybe they go and they do some guest conducting in area high schools or regional high schools. We'd really like to get them across mid-Missouri and enhancing the symphonic music scene all across that region. How did you get the word out about the position and how many applicants did you have? So we at first started with two different searches because we wondered if we were going to need a part-time music director just for the orchestra and a part-time music director just for the conservatory. But we found rather quickly that people actually were interested in both jobs and would be willing to move to the area, which of course is always a win to have them here and, and living and working in our community. When we first set out, we had, um, it's interesting when you approach a a music director search for a professional orchestra, you don't really put a a call out. You don't do a job posting per se, but instead you actually reach out to agents or to conductors directly. So that committee had put together a list of 30 
applicants. And I think out of that list, it was amazing. 23 were were people who were BIPOC and over half were women. So already that was really exciting. And so then I reached out to each one of them, uh, sent an email saying to them or their agent saying, you know, we've admired your work. We have this job. We'd love to talk to you more about it. And I heard back from about 10 of them. Hmm. Um, on the other side, the conservatory had done a search and it had to come across some candidates. And so when the committees merged into one, we kind of took two candidates from each committee. We thought that was fair. Um, and, and all four of them we knew had the ability to both masterfully conduct a professional orchestra and work and teach with students. Well, let's take a look at the conductors. Who you have as your final four? There's American-born Taiwanese Wilbur Lin, Argentinian-American Michelle Di Russo from the Dominican Republic, Darwin Aquino, and I think American-American <laughs> Chelsea yes. Gallo. Yes, yes. Let me start by asking you, what was it about these four? I mean, like you say you took two from each list, but what really narrowed it down to these four? I think that part of it was the energy that they brought to their interview, the way that they talked about symphonic music and sort of their vision of how they see it existing in our world today and and how to engage people in it, you know, in years to come. I think that was a large part of why we chose these particular four people. And another part of it was we were looking for people that maybe would have uh, a different life experience than those of us here in the Midwest, mm. you know, that they could bring to us and and sort of enhance what we have and, and bring some new ideas and some things maybe we haven't thought about of ways to connect with the people in our community. Well, let's talk a little about each of them. Let's start with Wilbur Lynn, who definitely was a childhood prodigy or a child prodigy starting his musical education at just five years of age and starting to conduct while he was still in high school. Plus, he started his own orchestra, the Chamber Philharmonic Taipei in 2008, when I think he was just in his first year at university. Besides all of that, what was it about Wilbur Lynn that stood out for the selection committee? You know, I think a large part of it was Wilbur was so energetic. And, you know, I I personally am a very energetic person, but I felt like he put me to shame. He was just exuding energy during his interview. And, and I think one of the things that really struck the committee was his passion for audience engagement and outreach. And I think that's a real focus for us, both in the conservatory and in the in the orchestra, is how we can bring music to different parts of our community. And so we were really excited about the ideas he had to engage people, to meet them where they are, and then to get them to come through the door here at the theater. Michelle Di Russo is a name familiar to me because she conducted the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Symphony of Toys concert last December, at which time she also came on Speaking of the Arts. And when we were chatting, we very briefly touched on the organization she co-founded called Girls Who Conduct. So she seems like a very compelling contender to me. What else was on her resume that caught your attention? Yeah, I think that what the Kenny was drawn to about Michelle is that she has had a very interesting background getting to conducting. She sort of fell into it by accident and she's yet she's very, very good at it. And I think, you know, her compelling story about how she never thought that she as a woman could conduct, Mm. you know, and that's sort of the passion why she founded Girls Who Conduct and how hard she fought and how hard she worked to, you know, earn that position is was really compelling. And it really showed the worth ethic that she had. And, you know, we have had a leg up. She did come and work with our musicians in December and they spoke very highly of her. She was very organized. She's very collaborative as a conductor, which is, um, I think a new way that conducting is moving for orchestra conducting. And I think that's really helpful because, you know, an orchestra is made up of professional musicians who all know what they're doing. So I think that her having that style and her her speaking of an interview was really intriguing to the search committee. And conducting, as you said, she fell into it. It wasn't where her musical career started. Tell us a little bit about her musical theater background. Yeah, she's kind of like me. She's a musical theater gal. You know, she actually started her main area of study for many years growing up was dance. And that was what she did. And then she also did singing. And so she graduated with a degree in those things. And then she worked professionally in Argentina, where she's from for many years as a sort of Broadway singer and actor. And then um, when she went 
when she was in school, she, you know, she didn't really know what to do. And so she had just come across, oh, or orchestra conducting and, and kind of fell into it. And then just from there, you know, has now has many degrees in it. But I can tell when you watch her conduct, it's really, she's really riveting to watch because you can see that sort of dance background in the way that she moves. Right. Yeah, she was lovely to watch on the podium. Moving on, we have another rising star female conductor, Chelsea Gallo, who, like everybody on the list, has multiple jobs. She's on the conducting star for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, the assistant conductor for the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, and the music director for the Loyola Symphony Orchestra in New Orleans, plus assistant conductor to Opera Orlando. And there's more. <laughs> Let's go goes on within the world of conducting how come everyone seems to have so many jobs it is um and i you know i will say you know chelsea is certainly the one candidate of ours that truly almost lives out of a suitcase every week she is traveling all the time i think part of it is in order to be able to do this job full time especially when you're starting off and you're a younger conductor you have to take the gigs you can get and sometimes that's a lot of part-time work. And and actually, that's really the case for a lot of different professions. But as an orchestra conductor, that to me sounds so daunting, because there's so much preparation. She talked a lot when she was here working with the conservatory about how much preparation she has to do and how she has to find the time to fit it in, even if it's on an airplane. And she was joking about how she had left a score at an airport and hoped that it would be there when she went back. So (laughs) it takes a a real discipline to to be able to do that. One of the things that I'm curious about with Chelsea is her role as the music director of the Cosmos Chamber Orchestra, who have collaborated with the European Space Agency, the National Institute of Aerospace and NASA. (laughs) Fill us in a little on her musical passions and that art science background that she has. Yeah, that was honestly one of the most intriguing things about Chelsea is that she sees a lot of really wonderful parallels and correlations between science and the arts. And she's very, very intelligent. And so she talked a lot about, you know, this partnership with NASA and really working with nuclear engineers. And she did a concert where she was comparing a nuclear power plant to music and how they work together. And she told this story through these musical pieces, which to me is just what a what a interesting way to think. And um, she really enjoys finding the arts or finding music in unexpected places and pairing them together. She also in her background was an athlete. So she talks a lot about sports and the arts. And, and the correlations there as well. So it's it's really fascinating to, to talk about that with her. Yeah, she seems like an exciting candidate. And last but not least, there is Darwin Aquino, who is familiar with Missouri as he lives in St. Louis, where he's the music director for the St. Louis Philharmonic and the assistant conductor for Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Plus, he's a composer and was composer in residence for the National Symphony Orchestra of his home country, the Dominican Republic. So another super high achiever, But what in his lengthy resume was most appealing to the selection committee? You know, I think that the thing about Darwin that really got the committee was his heart. He is just a lover of music and a lover of people. And you really can tell how sincerely he wants people to succeed, including kids. And, you know, he comes from the Dominican Republic and and he's very connected to a youth orchestra there and, and really got a start in conducting through working with those students. And and you can really tell how much passion he has for that organization and, and, and how many wonderful memories he has from working there. And I think I think the committee was really drawn to how much he really wants to interact and, and engage with other people. I always love reading the adjectives that are attached to conductors. And in Darwin's case, uh, he has a passionate and precise baton. He is sought after for his moving, absorbing and robust performances. And he knows to breathe with the singers. As a singer yourself, what conducting characteristics are important to you? It's interesting because Darwin is actually married to an opera singer. And um, I think that that is an influence in, in how he conducts for sure. And he does a lot of work with Opera Theatre St. Louis, which does a lot of really interesting sort of newer works, of course, and some that we know. But yeah, as a singer myself, yes, um, understanding the way that a singer approaches music is so important when you're working with a conductor in an orchestra. So I think that the, the difference between choral music and orchestral music is that choral directors do tend to be a little bit more precise in the way they conduct. So 
knowing that, that Darwin, you know, also likes to champion that precision, it would make me feel more comfortable. <laughs> well, as I said in my intro, each of these four conductors will conduct two concerts for which they have chosen the music. And we'll definitely get into the summer of conductors concerts in another show nearer the beginning of the season, which opens in mid-June. But tell us a little bit like when the season is over and the conductors have all given their performances, what happens then? What's the process? Yeah, so they're going to be very busy when they're here. They're each here for a week. And in addition to conducting two concerts, one of Masterworks, one of Pops, they will actually be doing another interview. They will be doing a public event. They will go to a dinner with the search committee. There will be a lot of eyes on them. And so we will be collecting data both from the orchestra, the committee, even patrons. There'll be some assessment tools going out. And then at the end of the summer, we'll collect all that data the search committee will get together and we will make the most informed decision we can based on the culture of our organization and where we see us heading as to who would be the best fit. And we hope that we will be able to name the Missouri Symphony's next conductor and only the third conductor in its history. You know, on paper, it just looks like an impossible choice. Could you not hire all four of them? (laughs) I know, right? I mean, I'm very pleased. You know, you never know in this day and age what's going to happen. I'm very pleased. And I mean, there there were even other wonderful candidates, but I'm very pleased with these four. And I feel that they each bring something that could be really wonderful, you know, to our, not only to our our organization, but to our entire community. Well, the Hot Summer Nights Summer of Conductors opens on Wednesday, June the 15th for the first of 12 concerts, which also includes a collaboration with Ozarks Amphitheatre down at the lake and a concert that features Marie Osmond. You'll be able to find out more about all of these concerts in the near future at themosey.org. But for now, you're just going to have to take our word for it and enjoy this sneak peek from my guest, the Executive Director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Trent Rash. Thanks, as always, for the chat, Trent. Thank you. Looking forward to the next time. I have had my portrait painted twice. Neither time was it out of any sort of narcissistic desire to see myself immortalised in paint. In both cases, an artist asked if they could paint my portrait. And I have to confess, neither of the works are hanging on my wall. And in fact, when I showed them to one local portrait painter, I think her response was the stronger American version of blimey. So I applaud all the people who agreed to be subjects for a fascinating new art exhibit at the Montminy Gallery of the Boone County History and Culture Centre called For the Love of Locals. The exhibit is a collective display of 60 portraiture works by local artists Lisa Bartlett, Jane Mudd and Amy Stevenson, in which they explore their common appreciation for some of their many friends and acquaintances who are influential to Columbia's arts community. The show has its official opening reception this coming Saturday and I'm thrilled to have the chance to chat with the exhibition's curator, Audrey Flory, along with the three artists, Jane Mudd, Amy Stevenson and Lisa Bartlett. Hello, art ladies. Hello. Hello, Diana. Hello. I noticed that with the exception of Jane painting Lisa, there was a lack of you painting each other. Jane, I know you love painting painting portraits, but how do you feel about being painted? Well, it's fine. I've got a couple of great portraits Frank Stack did of me, and uh, a few other artists have attempted to do me. I think it's great. I like to see what people see in my face. They're all different. Amy, has anyone ever painted your portrait? Would you be reticent or would it depend on the painter? Yes. uh, Joel Sager painted a portrait of me maybe a dozen years ago. It is not flattering, I must say, but it's a beautiful painting. (laughs) Uh, It's it's not very flattering and it's giant, um, but it kind of tickles me more than offends me. I I think it was an interesting experiment to have my portrait painted and I I would do it again. Lisa, this is such a compelling show because for any of us involved in the arts, it's a room full of people we either know or know of. Tell me the origin story for the exhibit. Well, in 2016, I was honoured by getting chosen to um, have my artwork as the Fall Festival poster. And I had done a painting of a band and... um, at the party that they throw for you, which is amazing. It was at the Missouri Theater, and the band actually got to come and play for it. So it was kind of a win-win, and it was just um, 
an epiphany. Oh, wouldn't this be cool to do portraits of more musicians, which I always like to do anyway, and then have them play at a reception. And so here we are. Dream come true. Well, I mean, there are lots of wonderful portrait painters in Colombia. So, Lisa, what was it about Jane and Amy's work that you felt completed the triumvirate with your work? Well, I just think both of those artists are so amazing. And what is compelling about their artwork is they capture the essence of a person. And, you know, Jane painted my portrait probably back in, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. And it was just amazing how she could capture my image. She kind of captures a piece of your soul. And Mm -hmm. I just love that. And Amy is the same in a different sort of subtle, very beautiful way of portraying her portraits. And I don't know if they're, I mean, they are portraits, but most of the time they're full length and just beautiful. Audrey, as the curator, talk to me about what your curator eye sees as you look around the gallery. Yeah, so this was a really fun project to be involved with. And just as an art lover, I have a love for portraiture in general. And so I wasn't too involved with the initial stages of this, but writing the opening panel, I was quite nervous to write it. But then it quickly became clear that these artists had a similar way of representing humans and creating a human connection. So while their styles are very different, they just have this very unique way, a very similar way of portraying human connection, whether that is intimate moments seen within a painting or moments that you can see between the viewer and the subject. When you say similar, what do you mean in this context? Yeah, so I think... When I say similar, I feel like I am coming from a point where I am discussing just this connection to each other. So I can see a connection that they have to one another, but also a connection to the community. Um, And that's what I really loved about this show. And I was really excited to be involved, especially after my involvement with Intertwined last year. It really just demonstrates uh, how vast and interconnected the arts community is and really just how supportive they are of one another. Um, So I think that's where some of those similarities come from. Lisa, story is a huge part of your work. And I always sense in your work the desire to capture not just a person, but the moment, the story and the energy of your subject. Tell me what it is about a person that you want to commit to canvas and how you build your portraits using collage and found objects. Yeah, I guess what I like to to capture is, especially with this, since they are all uh, musicians, I like to capture the the music within the, the artwork. So if you're a jazz artist, I kind of like to get that spirit of jazz in there. Or if you're a blues musician, then, you know, I like to capture the bluesy kind of soulful look. And then if you cross genres, then, um, you know, then I don't know what to do with you. But um, (laughs) so, so that's one aspect of it. And sometimes I use collage, and I like to do that to add interest and texture to a piece. And then other times, uh, just paint and using color, I, I guess I use color as an expression. And I use color as a form. So that's about it in a nutshell. Jane, I have admired your work for the best part of 20 years now. And I don't think there's anything that you cannot paint beautifully. But the works that I've always been most fascinated by are your portraits. Talk to me about sitting down in front of somebody with a paintbrush and and what it is that you want to capture about that person. Ultimately, the goal is to get the painting to look something like the sitter, right? I mean, that is one of the goals. The other goal, I think, is is to make a good painting and uh, and to capture some kind of the essence or characteristics or personality. But people shy away. It's like, can I do your portrait? And it's like, no, I don't want my portrait on the wall. And it, it's like, well, it's only a painting. It's a painting, you know, before 
anything else, really. I try to make it that way. So I think the trick is to not get too uh, too detailed and too photographic. And so when you work from life, it becomes uh, you're racing against time and you're working really fast and you're taking as many notes as you can in a certain amount of time. And um, I've typically done a, a lot of my portraits from life. For this particular series, I've done quite a few from my cell phone camera, I hate to admit. <laughs> but uh, Frank Sack, I, I love to quote that guy. He said, you know, it's okay to work from a photograph as long as you know how to work from life. And I feel like I've got enough hours in that that uh, I can take a little photograph and, and make it look somewhat alive. I think that's another goal we all try to do is put some life and immediacy into the into the sitter. I remember years ago, you had set up your easel outside the Columbia Art League for, I think it was an outrageous Friday event. And in the space of 15 minutes, you painted an incredible portrait of somebody who just stopped by and sat there for you. And for me, what I was spellbound by was the multitude of colours that you used in their face. And I asked you, how do you see all those colours? And you replied, how do you not? <laughs> so I'll ask you again, how is it that your brain perceives so many more colours than my eyes can perceive in a person's face? Do I? <laughs> <laughs> to me, you do. <laughs> I uh, guess it's just uh, experience in time. I started out not, you know, I was probably uh, more concerned with brushstroke and surface activity. But I think... What I'm doing is I'm comparing one plane in the face or the tree or the apple to the one next to it. And is it lighter? Is it more intense? Is it warmer? Is it cooler? And uh, so I'll exaggerate it. Simple. It's real simple. <laughs> simple for you, Jane. <laughs> I have to agree with Diana that um, Jane sees just an amazing array of colors. She actually helped me rescue one of the paintings for this exhibit. I took it up to Orr Street and she helped point out, see how the nose has pinks here in a way that I, I couldn't really see. So Jane... Jane does have something special in that way. I, I agree with you, Diana. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> I mean, although a portrait painting obviously centers the person, there's also the question of what surrounds them. And you each handle that pretty differently. Does anyone want to jump in and talk about their philosophy on how they deal with backdrops? What's behind the person you're painting? Well, sometimes, this is Jane, uh, sometimes it is what that person is about maybe or where they are or what they're interested in and again you can you can capture the essence of a person without props you know but it's important to kind of think about what you're going to do in the background i believe before you really kind of get started and when you structure the painting think about what colors are going to be on the right and the left and you know because that helps dictate what you do to that edge Sometimes I stick stuff in there, and I'm sure the other two can speak in the same kind of way. Sometimes we just, you know, focus on that portrait and then, uh-oh, what are we going to do with the background? And sometimes that can lead to problems. <laughs> Somebody else can chime in. Well, all kinds of things can lead to problems in paintings, right? Yeah, sometimes I plan, this is Amy, sometimes I plan my backgrounds around what seems appropriate to the person, and sometimes I work more intuitively. For this show, since it was really about the people and who they are in the community, I did try to focus on having the their surroundings be a little bit more thematic and representational of who they are. Sometimes that's a, a very thought out process and sometimes it's more intuitive. I was going to ask you about this one that you have a beautiful, they're all beautiful, but a beautiful one of, of J.R.T.'s, the soul singer and spoken word artist. And, and he is painted just on a beautiful piece of wood, a beautiful piece of birch, and there's there's nothing else. You just see the wood, the uh, the grain of the wood. I wondered why why you'd chosen that background in that, in that instance. I stumbled on that technique by accident a few years ago when I forgot to gesso something. Um, but I think it's sort of a trend now. I mean, in fact, I know it is. And since JRTs is a younger person, much cooler than I am, and that's seems to be um, 
a millennial trend and kind of a, a cooler way to do a background. I thought it seemed appropriate for him. And also I just I thought it was beautiful, but I stumbled upon it by accident. Yeah, it's lovely. Lisa, this Saturday's opening reception is so much more than a simple art opening. It is a performative experience. Tell us about what you have planned. Yeah, we have like 16 performers who are going to come to the reception and do a short performance for us. So, you know... First of all, Blind Boone's piano, his 10-foot piano, is in that space. And to start it out, Audra Sergal, who has actually been with us on this whole project from the beginning, she's going to start out and play with Roshara Knight, who is just an amazing singer. And then we have uh, Lisa Rose and Sean Hennessy. I mean, we just really have the best musicians in town coming out for this for us, and Jane has done a couple portraits of some writers, Dick Dalton and uh, Darren Dean, and they're going to read from their latest books. And um, and then Shannon Webster and Kenny Green are doing a duet. Wow. It's just going to be fun, and I think it'll all work out great. This is all in two hours. Yeah, famous last words, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, they're just going to come, do a song, and enjoy the reception. Well, For the Love of Locals opens officially this Saturday from 2 till 4pm, where you can not only see 60 portraits of Columbia's arts community, but also hear 18 musicians and poets. The opening is free and open to all, and For the Love of Locals exhibit will be on display through June the 25th. Audrey Flory, Amy Stevenson, Jane Mudd and Lisa Bartlett, thanks for putting together such a gorgeous tribute to our local arts community and for making time to chat today. Thank Thank you you so much, Diana. Thank you, Diana. When the cartoonist Charles M. Schultz died in February 2000, he left behind a 50-year legacy of 17,987 comic strips, which had amassed a readership of 355 million people in 75 countries, in which he gave immortality to a circle of young children, at the centre of which were, of course, Charlie Brown and his younger sister Sally, Lucy and Linus Van Pelt and Snoopy. There were others too, the Beethoven-loving pianist Schroeder, Peppermint Patty and Marcy, Snoopy's bird pal Woodstock, all of whom, together with the merchandise and adaptations they inspired, is said to have earned their creator over $1 billion. And one of those adaptations was the 1967 musical comedy entitled You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, a collection of 20-plus vignettes and songs from a series of average days in the life of Charlie and some of his pals, ranging from Valentine's Day to baseball season. And some 55 years after its off-Broadway success, the play, with some late 1990s revisions, is still doing the rounds of theatres across the country, including Columbia's Maplewood Barn, where it opens on May the 5th. Directed by Russell Becker, who is joining me this evening, along with the Beethoven-loving Schroeder, a.k.a. actor Sean Dennehy. Welcome to the show, Russell and Sean. Thank you. Hello, thanks for having us. I thought we might start off with a little trivia quiz, if you're up for it, as there's some really fun stuff lurking in the wings of this musical. So fingers on your imaginary buzzers, please. Okay, (laughs) question number one. Who played Charlie Brown in the off-Broadway production and for what television role was he famous? No idea. Nothing for me. No buzzers? This is a great piece of trivia. It was Gary Brughoff who played Radar in MASH. Wow. Yeah, he would be perfect for it. Isn't that fun? Yeah. <laughs> okay, second question. The music for the show was written by Clark Gesner, but the libretto was written by John Gordon. Who is John Gordon? I should know this, but I don't. <laughs> It's another really interesting one because it's really unusual. It's a collective pseudonym for the cast and the production staff who all worked together on the libretto because there wasn't one. (laughs) It was just a collection of musical songs. Trick question. I love it. (laughs) Okay, final question. This is about the cartoon strip. Where did the name Peanuts come from? There again, I have. You're not doing good at this trivia. I'm scoring three for three here. 
We are not. We're bombing out. Um, I have no idea why I got called Peanuts. Well, it was from a children's TV show called Howdy Doody. And the show had an audience of children who were seated in the peanut gallery and referred to as Peanuts. And it was the production manager of the feature syndicate that Charles Schultz sent his cartoon to who came up with the title. But Schultz never liked it. If anyone ever said to him, what do you do for a living? He would always evade the title and say... I draw that comic strip with Snoopy in it. He would never say peanuts. He didn't like it. So anyway, there you go. So, Russell, I'm always curious why people decide to be the director of a play they love rather than be in it. What made you want to direct You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown? I've always loved the show. And um, it was one of those things like if you were going to nominate it, you wanted to have the follow-through to go through to actually direct it. So this is my first time directing. Well, technically it's one and a half because COVID uh, shut us down in 2020. But I've always I've always loved The Good Man, Charlie Brown. I've been in it a couple of times before, and I just wanted to put my stamp of trying to be a director and my vision of how it should go. And you've been in it. You played, I think you said you played Linus. I've played Linus, and I actually played Linus in the version when uh, Maplewood Barn did it in either, it was late 03 or early 04. I mean, I liked Linus and Schroeder both, but I never learned how to play the piano, so I always liked the more intellectual things that Linus was spouting off. I mean, I like Beethoven, but it's not like something that I would have a Beethoven day for, so... Sean, you are playing Schroeder. Is this your first time playing in the play? No, actually, I was Schroeder once before about 17 years ago in Hannibal's Community Theater when they were still active. So I've actually played this role once already. (laughs) And are you a Beethoven-loving person in real life? I don't mind listening to classical music from time to time, but to be completely honest, I'm the type who is probably more likely to have musical theater on in the background so that I can be singing (laughs) along with stuff. Do you have to play the piano in the piece? No. Very thankfully, we have uh, created a piano for me that uh, looks very good and looks like I'll be actually playing something, but our wonderful pit is going to be supporting me in the background, so we've got a lot of good coordination going between (laughs) the two of us to make it look like I'm playing. There's a little secret there for anybody that comes to see it. Russell, the play doesn't really have any linear sense to it. It's more of a set of random vignettes that might happen on any regular day in the life of Charlie Brown. Some filled with optimism, some with despair. So tell us about some of those vignette moments that make up the musical and what you see as the arc of those vignettes. So there's a lot of different, like you had alluded to earlier, there's a Valentine's Day and that one's kind of more of a drag because, you know, Charlie Brown doesn't get any Valentines. I'd say the overriding arc of most of it is, is that they're trying to convince Charlie Brown that he's a good man. And I mean, even at the end of the show, they're very much saying, you know, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And uh, I think if you put all of the different characters together, you would have all the different highs and lows that a person goes through. But it, they try to keep it light all the time. And like you said, it's not linear. So it's like a revolving door of different things. Um, and there's always, always action that's going on constantly. Like different ones have said, once we finally got everything, the music, the singing and the dancing, everything put together, they're like... Really? We've been here for an hour and a half? We didn't realize it. So we're hoping that that will relate to the audience, too, that, you know, oh, wow, we've actually been sitting here for an hour and it doesn't feel like it. Sean, tell us about Schroeder in this play and, and what his special moments are. Sure. Schroeder has really a lot more singing type roles. I, I am thankful that I do not have like too many monologues to go through, but As you alluded to earlier, he is just totally obsessed with Beethoven and very, very not obsessed with Lucy, who is quite (laughs) obsessed with him. So a lot of Schroeder's scenes very much depend on him sitting in front of his piano, completely ignoring Lucy or dispensing wise wisdom sometimes to Sally, who is constantly upset about her struggles with her jump rope. You know, very relatable stuff. (laughs) But he tends to be more of the upbeat and happy one who is just then constantly let down due to various circumstances. 
Russell, there is much more singing than talking in this production, but I want to ask you about one particular song titled Glee Club Rehearsal, which is a complex mix of song and script. So let's just take a quick listen to a clip from the new Broadway cast recording. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. Give me my pencil. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word. Not on your life. the skies are not cloudy all day. If you don't tell me what you told me. Give me my pencil, you just seems incredibly complicated how on earth do you rehearse that it's very difficult we actually ended up where for the actors when they are doing their part where they're actually doing talking that we're going to have them just talk that out instead of trying to sing that in key with everything else that's going on and that way we also have somebody in the background that's constantly singing the home on the range so that in theory, we all end together at the end. <laughs> it is very hard. And then the book report song is also a lot like that because you have different ones where they all have their own little bit that they want to put in with everything else that's going on and trying to get everybody has to end together. But yeah, the the, the two, I would say the two hardest songs to learn and be able to work together is Schroeder's Glee Club and the book report song. Ultimately, all the cast are playing, and this is a quote, a handful of absolutely real, utterly earnest, deeply philosophical and slightly insane, undersized people who are locked in a time capsule of arrested sophistication where high school behaviour patterns are grafted on to nursery school children. So it's the kind of play, musical, that could get really hammy really fast. So, Sean, how are you all preventing that? Or, or maybe you're not. <laughs> There's definitely some times where we are hamming it up. I'm not going to even start to try to lie on that one. But a lot of those good human moments or the, the punchlines really don't land if you try to punch it too hard. And so it's a balancing act, trying to keep in mind that we're playing, you know, nine or 10 year old kids, which as a 37 year old adult is a little bit harder to put myself into that <laughs> mindset. And at the same time, making sure that we're getting the, the comedic bits and remembering, I think above anything else that what we are playing is comic strips. Well, one of the things that I do want to mention before we close is that you are partnering with Unchained Melodies Rescue. So, Sean, tell us how you're supporting them through this show. So one of the things that Maplewood Barn is trying to get back to doing this year is partnering with other nonprofit organizations to raise awareness for both organizations. So... When we were trying to figure out what would be best to do with uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, well, Snoopy is in there, and Dog Rescues just kind of reached out to us as one of those ideas uh, that latched hold. So we reached out to Melody at, at Unchained Melodies, and uh, they were super excited to start working with us. One of the things that we are doing is this upcoming Saturday, the 30th, we're doing puppy pictures so you can bring your dog and take pictures with the Peanuts cast at $10 per pose. All of those proceeds go directly to Unchained Melodies. And you can get pictures taken on the, the set and with the cast. And they are also naming a new batch of adoptable puppies that will be soon available for adoption. I believe that they're going to start on May 12th being available for adoption they're naming that new litter after the peanuts gang and on that may 12th date uh they will be at the barn it's a thursday night and we'll be having a 
pet supply drive. So if you bring dog food or leashes or collars, dog food dishes, any of those types of things that can help them and help their organization, you'll get discounted tickets, $3 off of the price of admission. Perfect. Well, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown opens at Maplewood Barn on Thursday, May the 5th and will run for three weekends, ending on Sunday, May the 22nd. As always with Maplewood shows, take your own camping chair and or a blanket to sit on, an extra layer and some bug spray. All the performances are rain or shine, which means if it is raining, then it will be indoors inside the barn. There are no matinee performances at the barn. Every show starts at 8pm and you can find out more at maplewoodbarn.com. Russell Becker and Sean Dennehy, thanks for giving us a peek behind the scenes and for making time to chat today. Thank you. Thanks, Diana. It takes a lot of work to hang a whole gallery of art, especially when all the works are done by different artists, each of whom has a different aesthetic, style, medium, and there is a diversity of matting and framing and presentation choices. It's like doing a giant jigsaw puzzle when there's no image of the solution. Sometimes you have works that immediately find a small friend group and they all want to hang together. And then there are other works which really want to be alone. And my next guest is one of only a handful of people in Colombia who knows only too well the beautiful possibilities and the perennial complications of hanging art shows and who has just hung a pop-up show that I am guessing might have presented its own unique set of challenges as each artwork is a four by six inch postcard. She is, of course, the executive director of the Columbia Art League, Kelsey Hammond. Welcome back to the show, Kelsey. Hello, hello. Can I just say how glad I am that it is you <laughs> who is wearing the Columbia Art League big girl shoes <laughs> these days as you are bringing such fun new ideas to the gallery. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, these are the things that I go, oh, this could be cool. Wait, how hard will this be? Okay, wait. Yeah, no, let's try it. <laughs> well, hanging a new art show is always a combination of excitement and anxiety because you know that the puzzle can be a thing of beauty, but it is like someone has hidden the puzzle box lid. How do you feel about show hangings? That is such a good way to describe it. Yeah, I think sort of in a what I would consider a quote unquote normal, none of them are normal, but a quote unquote normal group show you tend to know the artists who will submit and you tend to know the size of work that they do. So you can kind of expect six large pieces and a bigger amount that's medium sized and then a few small ones here and there. So you can kind of, I always anchor a wall with a big piece in the center or whatever the thing is that you go and you build the show from there. But when you have something where everything is exactly the same, but the subject matter is so different, that can be harder because now you're thinking color or cause you can't put things together by size because it's all the same, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like, how am I going to do this? So this is definitely a different looking show, but I had one of my best uh, gallery gal pals come and help me. And so Hannah Reeves from the Sager Reeves Gallery came over on Sunday and we put up their very cool laser level that they have and we just figured out how to hang it. So it, it actually looks very, very cool. Behind our countertop where we have our register, we have a more, what I would consider a more jumbled mishmash of postcards that are kind of a lot closer together. But the rest of the gallery, things are hung very level. There's two rows of things, but the entire gallery is filled with postcards that people have made. And actually we have so many, we couldn't hang them all. So we have then groupings of them also set out onto pedestals throughout the gallery. So you can actually thumb through and find your favorite that you might like. So the pop-up postcard show is only one week long and it is a fundraiser for the Columbia Art League's art scholarships. So tell us a little bit about the origin story for the postcard show first and then we can talk about the scholarship. For sure. So last year we did our sketchbook show and the idea behind that was to make it a community show where anybody and everybody could participate. We did ask for an entry fee for that because we gave them the sketchbook but there was no barrier on age or anything, you know, just make a sketchbook, turn it in. And it was also timed perfectly during the pandemic when people are like, you know, coming out from the crypt, like, can I leave my house? Are the walking dead still around or what's happening? So people came in in droves and spent time and really looked at all of the sketchbooks. And, and I, what I saw was 
in this community that we know and love of Columbia, people want to see what you're up to and they want to support you. So I like the idea of having a show that is completely open to anyone and everyone. And how can I reduce barriers to participate? So for this show, there was no fee associated. So whoever wanted to make a postcard could. So classrooms like Locust Street School made (laughs) all of the kids at school made a postcard for us, which was amazing. Smithton Middle School a couple of their classes made postcards and then a lot of artists with their kids or whomever. So you have a real mix of, of the things. So I just wanted to have a show that really reflected our community and could then support the scholarship program in that way. You know, to me, it makes sense to have someone can donate their four by six postcard that they make. That doesn't seem like a huge amount. And then whoever wants to buy it can donate whatever they want to they pick whatever it is that they want to donate. And then that will go towards the kitty that we are able to hand out for the scholarship program. So theoretically, somebody could come in and get an amazing piece of art for five cents. Yes. Theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> I will say the show, yeah, the show has been open now. So there there have been donations that are well exceed five cents, which is very generous. So that's good. Yeah. So the scholarship part of the equation is to help high school students who want to go on to study the arts at college. And historically, the Art League would always give an art scholarship award to a student at each high school. But tell us how it's working this year, how you're choosing the students. Yeah, it's same way. We're a little late to the party to get all of the information out there. So it won't be like announced at their high schools and things that they've gotten the award, but it's still here. The last two years, we were not able to offer this because of the pandemic and all the things. But this year, it was a high priority for us and our board that we are able to get back into the scholarship, making sure that we're doing this. So our idea is that we will still have one student from each school that is selected. And our goal is $500 each for those students. And applications are due May 31st. So it's much later than it normally would be for how we've done it before in the past. But our map is a little bit lost and covered in coffee and maybe some food. So (laughs) we're just we're just taking the road as we can. (laughs) Well, maybe it gives people more time because it always used to come at kind of a crunch point in the semester when everybody's busy with end of semester things and finals. So now they graduated, they finished and now they can spend more time on the application. Yes. That's how Mary, our education director, and I were feeling. We were like, we would have done this after we'd finished all our major projects. So this makes sense, actually. So I came by the gallery on Saturday hoping I could get a sneak peek at the show. (laughs) And I was a couple of days too early, so I didn't get to see anything. So paint a little bit of a picture for us of the collection of postcard art you received. I am... uh, I'm delighted. It's delightful. So there are, like I said, Locust Street really came through with every class and every grade made a postcard. So the kids who are studying birds did birds. And, you know, kids have a hard time coloring in every single white space on paper. This is something that is just a thing until you learn how to do that. And they really went for it. So like, (laughs) there's just like, there is color everywhere. Or um, the ones who are studying trees did these really awesome trees. So there's really cool projects that they just added into their curriculum of things they're already studying, you know. So that's really fun. Then we have artists like Kate Gray, who does a lot of abstract, really beautiful colors. And so she had, I think, sort of like her some of her test prints, you know, maybe it was a larger piece that she cut down to size and maybe made some extra marks on it or something. Pam Gaynor, similarly, she had a bunch of stuff that she had done before we announced the postcard show, just little studies of quick paints that she had been practicing or things that she was kind of like, well, these are just little tests, you know, but they happen to be the right size. So you have, it kind of runs the gamut. There are other things, um, motivational sayings on some of the postcards. Some are cartoony, some are more illustrative, some are landscape. And there's a really great rooster, I have to say. (laughs) Actually, I think there's two, Diana, but anyway, Um, no (laughs) glitter, but, but, you know, the rest. So I think people really just kind of made what they like. Or I think, too, that some artists who have been maybe doing one particular thing, switched gears and made something a little more fun. So when I look through, I see a lot of fun things or maybe new mediums that I wouldn't assume that artist usually works in. Hmm. And I don't know a lot of the people who who turned things in, which is exciting. I think, you know, that really shows that it is a community show. And it's nice to get to know new people and, and hopefully they'll want to show in other shows as well. So this might be a strange question, but are there any three dimensional postcards? 
Yes, that's oh. a great question. <laughs> there are. So um, there's one person who did little weavings and then either attached them on the card or used the card as that. Some people embellished with embroidery. And then there's one that has almost like a packing material, like a you know what you'd find in your shipping container or whatever, that is attached almost as if it's the ground or like the dirt down below on a landscape. So yeah, some people got super creative with it, which is, is cool. You can't necessarily send those to the mail, maybe, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, the only parameter you gave people was it had to be no bigger or no smaller than a regular four by six inch postcard. And other than that, they could, as you wrote, go wild and create. Yes. So I'm curious, like, what is the wildest one? I was really surprised by the the weavings. I don't know why. I love fiber. I love all that stuff. I don't do that stuff, but I love looking at that stuff. Um I can't remember who that person is. I wish I had their name off the top of my head, but they really were like, no, I do weaving. So I'm just going to incorporate that into the parameters of what's being asked, you know, which I think is pretty cool. So the show is only up this week and it is already Thursday and you have a reception tomorrow night before poof, it all goes away. But all week, if people see something they like, they can just pick it off the wall, Correct. make a donation and leave with it. So is there a possibility that it will be a denuded gallery by the time of the reception? I mean, that'd be kind of a good problem to have. I know, right? Very well could be. And I keep saying this is our first time doing this, you know, but I, I thought it would be a lot harder to figure out how to mark things sold and do a red dot. And we have over 350 pieces in this show. So it's like, okay, so you have plenty of extra. Okay, that yeah, makes me feel better. Lots, yeah, we have lots of extra. So and the, the thing is too, the the works that have sold thus far, some are by professional artists, but also some are by some of the kids. And that's really cool. So I think that if someone comes in and they're disappointed not to see their work, we can reassure them that that's because it was already selected, which is a very great honor. So yeah, I think it is a good problem to have. And you know, we'll have snacks. So people should be pretty okay. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll entertain people. <laughs> and once you've scraped all the putty off the walls, the next <laughs> gallery show arrives. Tell us what's coming next. Our next show is called Interior and open to interpretation if that means interior space like your home or your desk or your kitchen whatever still life could be anything like that or maybe it's your interior thoughts maybe it's physically inside something so maybe it's inside a jar inside your veins mm. you pick a thing it could it's very open to interpretation so the work I've been seeing come in we have people send us an image if they want to. So the stuff I've been seeing has been very different. So it should be pretty cool to see all the different interpretations of this idea. And I don't want to stress you out too much before we close, but I know that April is a super stressy month for the Columbia Art League team as Art in the Park is only five weeks away. What yeah. can you breathlessly impart about Art in the Park without hyperventilating? I mean, I am so excited. This is the camp counselor in me that comes out, I have to say, but <laughs> I'm really excited. I, I think that the sense of dread is the wrong word, but sort of, I have not yet done this yet in person. I've planned them, but they've not actually occurred. So to see all of the hard work come to fruition and also to see the artists who are coming in and also the people attending, I just think that my face is going to break from smiling so hard. So that's the energy that I'm trying to pull with me to... to to bring it all through because there will be a lot of long days up until and throughout the weekend of art in the park. But I'm just really excited that it's going to be such a happy event that people are going to be happy when they are there. <laughs> I never described myself in those terms at the end of April. I don't think I had any muscles that could smile at this point in time. So I'm very impressed that you are smiling so hard that your face might break because uh, I was usually crying so hard. <laughs> it's not the end of May, Diana. It's the end of April. I still have four weeks to cry plenty. So don't worry. <laughs> You're the first person I will call. I <laughs> I'll have my hanky at the ready. Yes, exactly. Or a margarita, whatever. <laughs> Maybe that's better. Yeah, exactly. To see the postcard pop-up show at the Columbia Art League head there tomorrow during the day or attend tomorrow evening's reception from 6 till 7.30. As always, the reception is open to everyone and it costs nothing to attend. And if you find a postcard you can't live without, you can take it home by making a donation of your choosing to the Columbia Art League's High School Art Scholarship Programme. And Kelsey Hammond, thank you so much for the chat and for bringing Art in the Park back to Stevens Lake Park on June 4th and 5th. Woohoo! Thank you.
And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Executive Director, Trent Rash, artists Lisa Bartlett, Jane Mudd and Amy Stevenson and art curator Audrey Flory, theatre director Russell Becker and actor Sean Dennehy from Maplewood Barn, and the Executive Director of the Columbia Art League, Kelsey Hammond. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!